This is the 11KBW Employment Podcast, where every month, members of our employment team get together to chat about a recent case. I'm Michael White, and today I'm joined by Catherine Taunton. She's going to tell me about Lycadel Services and Schneider, an EAT case about whether a bonus dispute should be heard in the High Court instead of the Employment Tribunal. Welcome to the podcast, Catherine. Thank you. This is your second time on the podcast, which I think makes you something of a podcast beanock, and indeed the only person so far who's got that honour. Um, have you got any tips for me as the interviewer in this scenario? Well, I would say just softball questions. Okay, softball. can do that. It's my specialty. So, Catherine, this was an £8 million bonus dispute, I understand, which any case involving finance just reminds me that we've really taken a drastically wrong turn in our careers to become lawyers. So can you tell our listeners what was the issue in Lycatel? The EAT in Lycatel had to decide whether the employment tribunal had been wrong to refuse to stay the claimant's claim for unlawful deduction of wages in respect of his bonus in favour of declaratory proceedings on the same issues which his employer had issued in the High Court. So the facts uh, were pretty straightforward. He's an investment analyst or a portfolio manager, depending on which side you ask. He's dismissed and he says he's owed £8 million in back wages. Yes, so Mr Schneider was dismissed for gross misconduct and the dispute really centred on a bonus which he said Lycatel had agreed to. The claimant's case was that he had been given a document setting out his entitlement by Lycatel's founder and chairman which he said varied the bonus arrangements contained in his written contract. And so one of the issues in the case was going to be over the claimant's conversation with the chairman and what the legal effect of that conversation was in relation to his entitlement to a bonus. I'm always amazed in these cases how these enormous sums of money turn on some alleged backroom conversation. You would have thought people would document these things extremely thoroughly, but apparently they don't always do so. So... uh, As our listeners will know, you'd be ill-advised generally to litigate a high-value contract claim in the ET uh, because your compensation will be capped at 25000 and you'd be stopped from bringing a civil claim for that money later. Yes, although you would often be able to rely on a contractor entitlement as an employee to bring the claim as an unlawful deduction of wages claim, the relevance of that being that there is no cap on the award that you can get. And so can you just remind listeners how a deductions claim works in a case like this? Yes. So Section 13 of the Employment Rights Act 1996 prohibits unlawful deduction of workers' wages. And it states that a deduction occurs where the total amount of wages paid is less than the total amount properly payable. So you could have a 100% deduction if you just weren't paid outright. Exactly. And under Section 27 of the ERA, which defines wages, wages include, among other things, bonuses. The question here, part of the test, is whether wages are properly payable. What happens when there's a dispute as to whether wages are properly payable? Sometimes questions do arise as to what amount was properly payable on a given occasion, or as you suggested, whether anything was properly payable on that occasion. And so this is a question that often arises in bonus disputes. There is a caveat, though, which is that according to the case law, the 
ET only has jurisdiction on a deductions claim in respect of an identifiable sum. And so essentially there's an issue which arises as to whether a sum is quantifiable, even if it's not in fact been quantified or if it's difficult to quantify. And particularly that can be the case where the payment of the bonus, for example, would have involved some exercise of discretion by the employer. And so this is a point that employers often take in these bonus dispute cases. And indeed, it was a point that Lycatel took in this case. So if my entitlement to a bonus depends on your judgment about how much I should get, it's going to be hard to bring a claim like that as an unlawful deduction. There's a question claim. as to whether that is a quantifiable sum and therefore whether it can be a deductions claim at all. So how did the parties litigate the dispute as to whether wages were properly payable in, in this case? The claimant didn't land on a firm position in correspondence. His letter of claim was written on the basis that it was in accordance with the CPR, so the civil courts. But he also presented a claim to the employment tribunal for wrongful dismissal and for unlawful deduction of wages. He expressly said in that claim that he was issuing in the ET protectively because of the very short time limits that apply to ET claims, that he may bring a breach of contract claim in the civil courts and that he sought to reserve his right to seek a stay of the ET proceedings if he did bring that civil claim. So the claimant's position was all over the place, but the respondent then issued uh, proceedings itself, didn't it, in the High Court, and at the same time applied in the ET to stay the proceedings there. That's right. Lycatel issued a claim for negative declaratory relief, essentially seeking a declaration from the court that the claimant wasn't entitled to the bonus he was claiming in the ET, and raising really exactly the same issues which the ET would need to determine for the purposes of the unlawful deductions claim. Now, it's possible that Lycatel and those advising it had in mind the case law which says that a stay shouldn't be granted in the ET where no proceedings have in fact been issued in the High Court, even when they've been intimated in correspondence. And that was a Court of Appeal case called Halsteads and Payment Shield Group. So it'll be hard to stay the ET proceedings just on the basis that there might be some High Court proceedings at some point or other. That's right. And remember, in this case, the claimant had suggested in correspondence that there might be such a claim, but that wouldn't have been enough for Lycatel. They needed to actually issue the proceedings, and, and that's what they did. The respondent having forced the issue, the ET then refused Lycatel's application for a stay, and Lycatel appealed to the Employment Appeal Tribunal. And what did the EAT decide on that appeal? Well, firstly, the EAT decided that the Employment Tribunal had applied the wrong test when considering the application for a stay. The test it should have applied was in which forum would this dispute most conveniently and appropriately be tried, that's the test from an earlier case, Bowater and Charlwood. And instead, the EAT said that the ET had asked itself the question of whether the case could adequately be dealt with by the ET, and also wrongly saw there as being some presumption in favour of the claim proceeding in the ET. The ET had said in its judgment that there had to be a very good reason why the ET should refuse to hear a claim regarding enforcement of a statutory right. So it's almost a sense of territoriality here from the Employment Tribunal on this particular Perhaps occasion. a little bit of that. Certainly thought that if it could be heard in the ET, it should be heard there. The EAT also said that the ET had failed to have regard to relevant considerations or had had regard to irrelevant considerations. In particular, that it had failed to engage with the complexity of the issues raised in this claim. So that's the issue around... Uh, 
potentially there being a shadow director in this case. That was particularly, the- yeah, that, that was particularly the shadow director issue was the one that President Edie in the EAT particularly landed on. The claimant had said that the chairman of Lycatel, who he said had given him a document varying his bonus entitlement, was acting as a shadow director for the employing entity. And that was a disputed issue. Okay, so having decided that the ET had taken the wrong approach and the appeal would be allowed, the EAT itself then went on to determine the issue of a stay, so it decided not to remit that back to the Employment Tribunal. Yes, that's right. And cutting to the chase, the EAT decided that the stay should be granted, essentially because the High Court was the more appropriate forum for the dispute. And what factors swung the balance in favour of the High Court in this particular case? Well, the test from Bowater doesn't limit the factors that the ET or the, in the EAT in this case, should take account of. It should take account of all of the circumstances of the case. But here, the key consideration really was that the High Court was the more appropriate forum to deal with a case of this factual and legal complexity, considering the nature of the factual and legal issues which arose. And so one of the things that President Edie said was that this isn't a case in which the ET has the particular expertise needed, not, for example, a discrimination case or an equal pay case. Rather, the issues are within really the core remit of the High Court. So even though, obviously, you can't bring an unlawful deductions claim in the High Court, what underpins that claim is often breach of contract, obviously, is something the High Court's well-equipped to address. Absolutely. And even here, issues arising sort of as to definition of a shadow director and the Companies Act and so on. Another issue that the EAT referred to was the the greater formality of proceedings, and in particular of pleadings, statements of case, in the High Court, and that that would have the benefit in a case like this of the issues being more precisely defined. Obviously, in the ET, there are limited rules as to pleadings, and often pleadings are drafted in a much more imprecise way by both sides. And of course, you don't often you don't have the same sort of admit deny put to proof sort of approach that you get in a civil claim. Exactly. And that was a factor that Mrs Justice Edie said was very material. So those are all factors, obviously, in favour of of litigating this in the High Court while staying the ET proceedings. Were there any factors on the other side of the balance in this case? Two in particular that Mrs Justice Edie took account of, simply the prejudice to the claimant of not being able to litigate where he wanted to, i.e. in the ET. Although she did say that he had shown some interest in litigating in the High Court at the outset. That's made that factor a bit more neutral. Exactly. And it also seemed that in this case, the potential prejudice of delay in determination of the proceedings wasn't particularly weighty because it seemed as though the High Court would probably be able to hear the claim not long after uh, the ET would have been able to. So really both of those potential factors causing prejudice to the claimant seemed to come out fairly neutrally. And what about the cost regime that applies in the employment tribunal versus the high court because obviously what a claimant will very often say is hang on i've got a right not to have unlawful deductions made to my wages um, and i've got a right to bring that claim in the employment tribunal where it's very unlikely that i'll be ordered to pay the other side's costs how is it fair in that scenario to make an employee await the outcome of a high court claim yes and i think that's probably likely to be the most significant prejudice that might arise for a claimant facing this type of application for a stay from their employer or former employer. But actually, that issue was really 
quite deftly neutralised by Lycatel because Lycatel offered to proceed with the High Court proceedings on the basis that the same cost principles would apply in the High Court as they would have done in the ET, i.e. that both sides bear their own cost and there's limited circumstances in which they'll be able to recover their costs from the other side. And so, putting it simply, limited circumstances in which the claimant would have to pay Lycatel's costs if he lost. So in terms of strategy, I suppose one could look at it from the employer's side or the employee's side. So one can definitely see why an employer, I suppose, might well want to take claims to maybe a slightly more hard-edged jurisdiction and have claims like this determined by a high court judge. What can an employer take away from this case in terms of how they should go about that? One of the key determining factors in this case, and in fact, Mrs Justice Edie said that it tipped the balance in her analysis, was Lycatel's offer to have essentially the ET cost regime apply in respect of the high court claim. And so that seemed to have been a very significant move from Lycatel. And if you're an employer in that situation facing a high value claim, it may well be the case that the value of the claim and the importance to the client justifies foregoing the possibility of recovering costs in order to have the claim heard where you think you're going to get the best hearing. And so if you really are sure that the High Court is going to give you the best hearing, certainly worth making that concession when you're seeking the stay before the ET. And I suppose on the flip side of that, perhaps, if you're an employer who's thinking, oh, this looks like a difficult claim, can we apply some cost pressure by taking this off the High Court? Maybe this case is a bit of a cautionary warning that you might well not get a stay, although it's fact-dependent, unless you're willing to bend a bit on costs. Yeah, exactly. I think it's difficult to predict precisely what would have happened in this case had that not been the case. Reading the judgment, you get the strong impression that Mrs Justice Edie really did think the High Court was very much the better place for this. But if the effect of that would have been to deprive the claimant of a viable unlawful deductions claim in a no-cost recovery jurisdiction, the balance of the respective prejudices there seems much more finely balanced and it may may have been much more difficult to get the stay. And this is probably a scenario where the degree of overlap perhaps comes into play because if what you're doing is basically taking an ET claim and a lawful deductions claim and trying to hive out a particular bit of that to the high court, it's very easy to see why in that scenario the courts would be quite reluctant to deprive you of your favourable ET cost position. On the other hand, if you've got claims that are pretty separate, so the employer has a standalone right that you don't breach your PTRs that it wants to enforce in the High Court and you've got your parallel employment claim, in that kind of scenario, it's harder to see an employee extracting a concession as to the cost regime that would apply in the High Court. Another factor which might have been significant in this case, but turned out not to be, was the respective delays that there would be in getting to a trial in the ET and the High Court. And I think for employers in this situation seeking a stay, one practical tip is to make sure that you've found out when the High Court is going to be able to get the trial on and certainly try and get that as soon as possible. And you need to get out ahead as soon as possible, but if you want to issue in the High Court, get on and do it. Get on and do it and also get on and make that application for the stay as soon as possible because the sooner you make the application for the stay the more likelihood it is that you've got there early in the proceedings the less likelihood the ET is going to say well we've got a final hearing coming up in this in a few months 
the High Court's going to cause too much delay. So yes, making clear that you know exactly what you can say to the ET about the issue of delay and as much as possible making sure that there isn't going to be a significant delay by having the proceedings in the High Court. I think a final consideration as well from an employer's perspective is, you know, this this judgment shouldn't be seen as a carte blanche to go seeking declaratory relief wherever it might be useful in respect of an ET claim. So it seems to, to me that one of the pretty compelling factors in underpinning the, the order for a stay here was the value of the claim because £8 million is, whichever way you cut it, quite a lot of money. Whereas I think if you're looking at, say, you know, one or two million, it might be more difficult sell to get that stayed in the ET in favour of high court proceedings. Yeah, I think it's always going to be a factor in the mix. And the other thing, of course, is that in those circumstances, all the considerations around whether it's in your client's interest to, uh, for example, offer no cost recovery if you do pursue the high court, simply the fact that the high court claim is going to be more costly to run, almost certainly, all of those factors are going to come into the mix when you're thinking about the value of the claim. So that's the employer's side of things. And what if you're an employee, um, and let's assume for a moment you don't want your employment tribunal claim to be stayed, and generally, of course, an employee is probably going to benefit from the fact that the ET is a slightly more flexible jurisdiction. Obviously, it's automatically a a no-cost jurisdiction, absent exceptional circumstances. Um, What sort of strategic consideration should an employee bear in mind? I think... While it serves the employer's interests to make the ET claim appear as complicated both legally and factually as possible, such as to favour the High Court, the converse of that is that for the employee, what they should be doing is trying to make the claim appear as simply as possible. And that's not something you do when you're resisting the application for the stay. It's something that you need to do right from the outset when you're thinking about the way that you plead the claim. I mean, one of the issues that Mrs Justice Eady described as a very material factor was the formality of pleadings in the High Court and the fact that that would enable precision as to what the issues were. So it might have looked a bit different if here the employee had had a sort of super precise High Court-style pleading before the ET. That might have taken some of the wind out of the employer's sails. I think it would. So a very precise pleading, much more like a civil court pleading and also as much as possible simplifying the issues i mean in this case from the reading the judgment it looks as though there was some seeking to resile from the point around shadow director such as to say oh, it's not really that complicated but it was there in the grounds of claim and so really thinking about only saying what it is you need to say and not over complicating the claim because that could come back to bite you when you're seeking to resist the stay and what's the significance of this case more generally Well, this judgment doesn't change the law, but I think it is a useful judgment for two reasons. Firstly, that it very clearly sets out the legal principles that the ET should be applying when it's considering an application for a stay in circumstances like these. But secondly, because it sets out clearly the factors that will be taken into a consideration and also gives us a hint as to which of those factors are likely to be significant and also hints as to what one might do to anticipate those. That was Catherine Taunton talking to me, Michael White, about Lycatel and Schneider. You can subscribe to the 11KVW Employment Podcast on all the usual podcast apps. You can also email us at employmentpodcast at 11kbw.com.